Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. So, Delia, what do you think of Apple Vision Pro, their augmented reality headset? <laughs> God, they look so dumb. <laughs> but I also just can't get past the idea of like, oh, you're going to buy these like like $3,000, $4,000 goggles so you can like look at PDFs closer <laughs> to your eyes. <laughs> but we thought AirPods, I feel like, looked dumb. That's true. I remember reading an article that called them like white pupa. <laughs> no, now I can, and I can never forget that. Um, I feel like I'm into these glasses when it comes to maybe watching a movie. Like once I was at some fancy dentist office and I got to watch Baby Driver on them and it was incredible. Wait, what? <laughs> what dentist is this that they had like VR goggles? Yeah, That's amazing. I don't go there anymore. They don't take my insurance. <laughs> <laughs> of course. I know. I guess like the, uh, the whole point is sort of like, oh, these are the first iteration. Like in a few years, they'll be you know, unimaginably sleek. They'll probably just be like a pair of sunglasses or something, you know. And I I feel like the draw is like, you got to get on board now, you know, because in five years, you're not going to know how to work these. And then you'll be like, you know, a geriatric millennial and the Gen Zers <laughs> will be like, just, you know, just click it with your eyes. And you'll be like, what do you mean? You're listening to Inside the Hive, where Vanity Fair writers tackle the week's news in politics, media, and entertainment. I'm Charlotte Klein, a staff writer at Vanity Fair's Hive, where I write about media, politics, tech, and the intersection of the three. And I'm Delia Kai, senior vanities correspondent at Vanity Fair, covering culture and celebrity. In this episode, we're talking about the recent tumult in the news ecosystem and ask, where are we going next? We're going to start by talking about the biggest news of the day, which broke Wednesday morning, which is that CNN CEO Chris Licht is out. And, you know, especially for media insiders, this was shocking news. It's wild. We have some breaking news for you. CNN's chairman and CEO Chris Licht is leaving the network. He steps down after just one year, a little over a year in the job. Feels like the writing was on the wall. It's a disgusting industry. It's how it works. And so this is huge news for a number of reasons, not least because... On Friday, Tim Alberta wrote for The Atlantic this highly anticipated profile. It was 15,000 words, and he got months of access to Licht. People were waiting for this because it was, A, unprecedented access, and B, it was kind of going to be this first real look at him. I mean, Jim Stewart in The Times wrote a profile of Licht last uh, December, but this was going to be kind of the first look at, like, where everything had gone wrong because— since then, CNN's ratings have plummeted even further. There was their disastrous town hall with Trump, and Alberta was there in the crowd and had all of this insight into it. 
And, you know, after the profile came out, people were basically asking, how can he stay in the job? And we got our answer today, which was that he cannot. I think it just made it even more dramatic because it was like, oh, I read the homework. Here it comes. (laughs) Like, here's the thing we've been prepared for in a way. Yeah. I mean, I think the Atlantic profile really sealed his fate, you know, It's going to be a tough pitch for to whoever Tim Alberto wants to profile next. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, because especially I'm wondering how Alberta pitched it to CNN, where it was like, I'm sure he was sort of like, oh, this will be your your victory lap year. It'll be your victory lap after your first year. I think he read that he approached them in the fall and said that he was going to do it whether or not they wanted to participate. And then he had lunch with Licht. And then I think they had another lunch and then they kind of opened it up. But like apparently Licht really wanted to do this, which obviously just is sort of tough to know in retrospect given what happened. Do you think Licht was like, I'll be vindicated. Like the town hall will be amazing. And then this piece will come out and I'll look like a baller. Well, at the end of the piece, Alberta asked him, do you think I could write a positive piece about you? Mm -hmm. And Lick says, yes. Oh, he he was like really quiet, right? And he's like, absolutely. Yeah, he's like, why did you hesitate? He's like, I wanted to be really sure. (laughs) I think that this profile obviously wasn't the only thing that sealed his fate, Mm -hmm. but I think it came on the heels of horrible ratings, the disastrous Trump town hall, a bunch of programming questions in terms of where talent was going. Mm -hmm. And I think that I'm sure that there was nothing in this piece that, you know, Warner Bros. Discovery CEO David Zaslav didn't already know. Mm -hmm. But I think once it's out there, it's pretty hard to come back from that. Yeah, yeah. I think especially because what what did we find out yesterday that Chris Licht was like apologizing? He was like, oh, I'm sorry. Like I made myself the story. Which is, I think, a perfectly fair apology. But Mm -hmm. I think it's sort of a weird thing to say after you spend months and months with a reporter. Like obviously at that point you're becoming the story. Yeah. And you're you're a media executive. You should know. Yeah. You should know of all people. Dale, you read the profile. What do you think of it? I mean, it was so brutal. Like, I think what struck me most was that there were all these quotes from him that just sort of made it sound, you know, that he was out of touch with either the perception of how he's doing, um, but also I think just sort of operating in this universe where I think there's still this belief that there can be a really magical combination uh, for CNN to to hit, to be like the like centrist, uh, you know, cable news organization um, without angering anyone. And it just sort of makes it really clear what a dilemma that is where you basically just anger everybody. Um, I, I just remember thinking like he seemed really into this idea of like, you know, CNN is going to be about conversations. And it, that just sort of feels like a naive or just misguided kind of <laughs> belief in in the cable news format and, and um, just sort of maybe like the state of political discourse today. But that's that's like a very jaded take. But I also just thought it was really funny. Like there was one line where Alberta is kind of asking him, like, do you worry about how you're being perceived or like the fact that people think you're not doing an amazing job or something? And Licht is just like, I don't really think about that. And then he goes on for like a few paragraphs where he's sort of defending himself. And then at the end, he comes back and he's like, but I don't really think about it. I, you're sort of like this poor man. Like, he just has no yeah. idea. <laughs> I mean, I think that the thing about the profile that I really enjoyed was that he had so much access. Mm-hmm. He had this perspective where I think at the end of the piece, he says, this is not the man I met, the, not the same person I met a year ago. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of the best way to do this kind of access journalism where you actually use the time to inform um, yeah. You know, your reporting, not only kind of what you learn in the process, but also just like— ju- comparing that. Mm -hmm. 
And I mean, there were a lot of really damaging things in the profile. I mean, one thing, this apparently didn't come from like himself, but during the Trump town hall, one of the CNN chirons in, during the pre-show said something about sexual abuse, which Donald mm-hmm. Trump was just found liable for a day before in the E. Jean Carroll suit. And apparently one of Lick's lieutenants called the control room and said to get that off the screen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of just Alberta having that insight. But I think the thing that pissed people off most inside CNN was that he seemed to disparage the journalism that they had done. And that was kind of a long-running frustration with Licht Mm -hmm. in the way that he came in. And I think, you know, he did say to Alberta he wished he hadn't come in so hot. Mm -hmm. But however bad this profile was, if the ratings were good, it probably wouldn't have mattered as much. But I think it's the combination of sort of the hubris combined with the fact that CNN's ratings are seeing record lows. Mm -hmm. It's not really clear what their talent strategy is. I mean, they just put Caitlin Collins in the 9 p.m., Share, which is, I think, a good move. But the morning show didn't work out. Don Lemon is gone. Mm-hmm. Talon apparently lost confidence in him even more following the profile. And he came in yesterday saying he was going to fight to win everyone's trust back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think some people are reporting, like, some CNN journals already knew his days were numbered at that point. Yeah, yeah. I It sort of is very emblematic, I think, of just this moment of crisis of identity for CNN. Because, like, you know, the sort of joke is that CNN is, you know, what you turn on when there's, like, breaking news all the time. News is always breaking, right? And um, I remember in the profile, like, uh, I think he talks to Don Lemon sort of about this this kind of uh, dilemma where it's like, you know, if we're living in a time where it feels like every other news item on a scale of 1 to 10 is an 11, you know, how do you calibrate around, like, the outrage? Like, are you just, you know, outraged all the time? Or do you sort of figure out, which I think Licht was trying to do, or he's sort of like, oh, you know, is there a new scale to sort of be made? But then, you know, then you run the risk of of saying, like, we overhyped COVID, you mm-hmm. know, in a way. Um, so I, I've just sort of been taking this news as kind of this, you know, very clear embodiment of of cable news, just not really sure like where it fits into the cultural discourse now. Um, it definitely feels like this sense of like an old order, uh, being really unsure how to move forward in, into, uh, you know, these times after the Trump administration, after the height of COVID. Um, you know, it seems like they're not sure what role that they can play. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I do think a lot of this is kind of about where it fits into our current media ecosystem. And I think particularly when it comes to Trump, you know, I had interviewed CNN's political director, David Chalian, before, and he had said that Mm -hmm. they were going to cover Trump like anyone else. Obviously, that didn't work. Mm -hmm. I think CNN more so than like MSNBC or Fox, which are both kind of more partisan in their own ways. But Mm -hmm. I think that the old ways of covering aren't working. And it's almost like also the old ways of broadcasting that coverage aren't really working. Yeah. And I think it is very interesting to me that people say, you know, in a few years, cable might just, just might not exist. Yeah. I mean, talk about like what's been going on at Fox too. Like just, you know, Tucker Carlson being out. I think it was the same day that like Don Lemon was out, right? So it was very much like, oh, all these like, you know, heads who kind of, we've gotten used to seeing on our TVs, like they're gone all of a sudden. Um, That seems to really signal a shift for sure. Yeah. And Fox's ratings have been struggling. They were struggling particularly in the aftermath of Tucker's exit, Mm -hmm. even losing out at some points to Newsmax, this kind of right-wing fringe outlet that 
stole a lot of its viewers in the aftermath of the 2020 election when it was espousing pro-Trump conspiracies. Mm-hmm. But so Fox's ratings are also struggling. I mean, mm-hmm. we had seen reporting that Newsmax was trying to get Tucker, as were some other um, sort of smaller outlets. And instead, he went to Twitter, which I think definitely is a sign at the Times. Mm-hmm. And his mm-hmm. first show was on—he had his first show on Twitter last night. It was like his first installment, I think the New York Times called it. Hey, it's Tucker Carlson. This morning, it looks like somebody blew up the Kokovka Dam in southern Ukraine. Um, it was 10 minutes, and there were no guests or produced segments. It was just a monologue from Tucker, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like being pro-Putin and— mocking Zelensky and, you know, even kind of doing some extraterrestrial <laughs> speculation. On the front page of the New York Times website this morning, there were five stories about Ukraine, as well as four stories apiece about Donald Trump, trans people, and climate change, the usual lineup. There was nothing at all about how an alien species is flying hypersonic aircraft over our cities. Not one word. I didn't catch this, but, like, do you know, was it, like, produced? Or I'm just imagining, like, Tucker vlogging from, like, like any normal YouTuber, basically, <laughs> if he's doing it on Twitter. He had a little tripod. Yeah. <laughs> As of today, we've come to Twitter, which we hope will be the shortwave radio under the blankets. We're told there are no gatekeepers here. If that turns out to be false, we'll leave. But in the meantime, we are grateful to be here. We'll be back with much more very soon. So it was him sitting in front of these bookshelves and, like, a few graphics— and some some broadcast people were tweeting that he seemed to be controlling the teleprompter by himself. Um, <laughs> I mean, he's been doing his show from his from home for mm-hmm. a while. So I think in, in a sense, it's actually probably not that much of a departure for him. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a fish out of water. Yeah. What do you feel like it says that Tucker is going to Twitter? It's sort of funny because— I just, I'm really into this idea of thinking of Tucker just out there grinding like any other influencer. <laughs> um, it, almost like on one hand, I almost see it as like just this sort of siren song in some ways of this idea of, you know, you can, if you are your own personality, you can really take your show literally anywhere. And, um, you know, it almost kind of comes down to like, which platform can you strike the best deal on? But it's really funny that he picked Twitter because it kind of seems like he fundamentally doesn't understand his audience. Like, I think I remember reading something where <laughs> some joke where people were like, all right, like, I got to call my grandma and explain to her how to, like, log on to Twitter. You know, it's just sort of such a fundamental shift in, you know, there's very there's a difference between, you know, turning on your TV to Fox News Um in you know, out of out of habit that I think this whole, you know, Fox News demographic has, but then expecting them to move to like, you know, not even moving channels, but moving to a totally different platform is uh that seems like a fundamental misunderstanding. Um and I'm curious if, you know, if he thought of it as a way of to of reaching maybe like a newer, younger, you know, demographic for whatever reason. Um so I just think that like shift in in format and, and platform is is sort of hilarious in some ways. Um, But I have seen these growing concerns that, you know, the fact that Tucker went to Twitter says a lot more, I think, about Twitter than it does about Tucker, who's just kind of, I think, like, where should I go? What's the easiest thing, you know? I imagine Twitch is a bit, is maybe too hard for even him to figure out. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point. When DeSantis announced his candidacy on Twitter, right. and that was this kind of colossal failure, mm-hmm. particularly technically, because there were all these glitches, but also it ended up just kind of being Elon taking over the whole thing, and people were like, why would you seed mm-hmm. your announcement, the spotlight almost? But I think, you know, when you do TV, there are hundreds of people involved in putting that on. Mm-hmm. And there's also this production value that I think actually enhances someone's power, mm-hmm. or at least perceived power. We'll be right back after this short break. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> So cable is only one part of our media environment that is struggling. Um, at the end of April, BuzzFeed shut down its news division, which was a huge blow and I think signaled for a lot of people it's kind of end of an era, particularly end of an era as it relates to the social media-fueled uh-huh. news landscape. And yeah, I mean, you used to work there. Can you talk a little bit about how that felt? Yeah, I mean, especially in the like the mid-2010s, I'm thinking around the time, like, like I was in college, I was in journalism school, and, you know, all my friends and I ever wanted to do was end up working at BuzzFeed News um, or BuzzFeed because it just seemed like—it just seemed like the place to be. It was sort of this impossibly exciting place that was just flush with, um, you know, capital, and it was hiring all these, like, really cool people who were very popular on the internet or they would get popular on the internet, and— you know, the idea of working for a place that was making the quizzes and the articles and, you know, the lists that we spent all our time in college, like like during lectures, just looking at, you know, that seemed like the fun place to be. That almost felt like our version of MTV. I was like, yeah. you know, BuzzFeed and BuzzFeed News are here to tell you, like, what's cool and what's important. Um, and MTV News also. <laughs> I know. Yeah. So it, it truly is end of an era because MTV News just shut down as well. Um, it's, it's all like fitting together, you know. Yeah. Um, I always tell people like I ended up joining BuzzFeed in 2017, so sort of right on the tail end of what felt like the really golden years. This sense of possibility of like we could really remake the internet. We could really, you know, use this model of generating these viral listicles and quizzes and and stories and use that to fund you know, hard-hitting journalism that ends up uh, winning awards and doing really important work. Um, And so I think just even journalistically, it was this really exciting place where it just felt like, oh, maybe this is the company that has figured out what the next era of digital journalism will look like in digital media. 
Um, And it was just a really, it was like a lovely place to work. Everyone was, you know, in their 20s and 30s, just really like eager and nerdy about the internet. Um, There was this, I think especially, you know, this was something I think Jonah Peretti really impressed upon everyone was this idea that like, all the technology that we had, all these new platforms, they were like exciting partners and tools that we could use that like they were like they were our allies. Facebook was our ally. You know, Facebook was kind of our springboard for how we would, you know, get all these views and therefore become like a successful company and be able to do all this important work. It was almost sort of like like an escape room kind of game of like, okay, here are the rules that the platforms are setting. BuzzFeed and BuzzFeed News really rely on us figuring out those rules and making content that basically, um, you know, is is sort of perfect for that ecosystem. Uh, but I think over time, just in the four years I was there, there was definitely this growing disillusionment with the fact that honestly, every month it was sort of this idea of like, well, traffic has suddenly changed. Like the way we used to do things, it's not working anymore and we have goals to hit. So you know, everyone get in the war room and try to figure out, like, what did Facebook change? And it just increasingly became apparent that we were at the whims of these platforms that could either, you know, turn the water on or turn the water off. It was like like having a landlord that would just decide, like, today, no heat for you. <laughs> you know? <That's> so sad. <laughs> and there's nothing you can really yeah. do, right? You're like, well, I guess I'll just make more articles. But, you know, there's, there's a ceiling on that yeah. for sure. Yeah, and I think the news division was kind of also running into sort of the unique— conundrum of being asked to produce more after mm-hmm. several rounds of being gutted. Yeah. And I think that's yeah. also sort of where we're at. You know, you're seeing places like The Messenger, mm-hmm. which is a new website, and they've gotten a lot of flack for kind of just pumping out aggregation mm-hmm. rewrites of, of different news articles. And it's just kind of like a content machine. Yeah. And I think that that's, there's a a sort of a question right now is like, is that what we need more of? Mm -hmm. But I think this also ties to a bigger discussion of like, what do we quote need? I mean, there's this conversation about like, do Americans want more down the middle news, which is sort Mm -hmm. of what I think CNN was trying to achieve. Right. Do people just want more opinion columns? Do people want more, you know, quick hits like mm-hmm. Axios Smart Brevity? And so, I don't know. I think that people for a while have been trying to figure out what what the demand is. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, the, the kind of confusing thing right now is I'm having a hard time figuring out what it is that the next thing will be. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to understand where we go from here because it seems almost like the BuzzFeed model was the way of the future. I feel like the business of news has always kind of been this tension between like what do you think the audience needs to know or to hear and versus like what do they actually what are they really going to click on or what are they really going to watch so it's always this kind of like oh like we got to like sneak the vegetables into their you know like cotton candy or whatever but especially I think with like the kind of growing polarization it kind of becomes even clear that you know meeting in the middle just like both sides conversations and I'm sort of like I think the majority of of the American audience is not they say they say they're looking for that but my cynical view is sort of like no one really is. Yeah, and I you know? think that that's kind of something that I mean it's made even harder the idea of this kind of unbiased news is made even harder by the fact that there's so much misinformation out there. I mean, that seems, mm-hmm. I feel like it's such a cliche even to say at this point, but I feel like we saw it very clearly with the CNN town hall where 
with Trump, where Chris Lake had said in the past that we're not going to allow liars, election deniers, mm-hmm. and so forth. But then after the CNN town hall with Trump on their panel, they had a representative from Florida who refused to say that uh, Biden won the election. And so as much as, you know, Lake wants to say he's not going to allow anyone on that say it's raining when it's not, we saw yeah. not only with Biden Jones, but with Donald Trump. Yeah. So I feel like it's increasingly hard to give that kind of, quote, unbiased news when mm-hmm. you're encountering, act like, bad actors or encountering people who don't agree with you there. No, I, I totally agree. It, I feel like it just kind of goes back to even, like, you know, even when we're talking about the Vision Pro goggles that Apple is putting out and, you know, this whole exciting world of, like, augmented reality, virtual reality, and it's like, guys, we can't even agree on a shared reality now in this, like, meet space, in, you know, in the, especially, like, even in the, in the institutional media outlets, like, I'm not ready for this augmented version of that, you know? Such a good point, yeah. Yeah. And so it makes total sense to me over the past few years where people were just really gravitating to names that they knew, like, just individual people that they trusted, this is maybe bias coming from two of us at a legacy magazine, but I think that's also why you see places like Vanity Fair or even Condé Nast titles kind of withstanding these shifts because at the end of the day when things just feel so uncertain and shaky, you know, just the ability, like, I think the value of recognition of like, here's a person that I follow on Twitter and therefore, like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to listen to what they're saying because I feel like we know each other. I feel like I trust them. I think that transfers very easily to just brand names that have also just been around for a while where you're sort of like, oh, there's almost this parasocial thing of like, I'm just going to trust them because the mental load of going and figuring out like, is the messenger for me? That's that's like a huge mental load. I think most people are not really willing to do that. But I mean, to that point, I I think we're also seeing these brand names that, you know, some people mm-hmm. valued and, and trusted disappearing, like BuzzFeed News and even Vice, mm-hmm. yeah. which also feels in its own way like an end of an era. I mean, they they did so much good reporting and now they've declared bankruptcy. And so I'm kind of wondering at this point, like, it, there are certain names and brands that I feel like have, have held out. Yeah. But at the same time, it feels like having a reliable brand is also not enough anymore. Yeah, it is. It is. It's so wild because it's like the Vice brand, so strong. You could basically, I think, you know, people would use it to describe other things. You'd be like, oh, it's like Vice, but for edibles or yeah, exactly, whatever. Yeah, exactly, Um, Like this brand was worth like, like billions of dollars. Like yeah. what happened? Inside the Hive, we'll be back in just a moment. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. So we've been talking a lot about news media. We obviously have to mention social media, especially because I think they're more and more intertwined these days, like people bringing their shows to Twitter. But I think that 
social media is often cited as the number one place that people get their news. Mm-hmm. It actually feels like there are more question marks now about both news media and social media and how they relate to each other. Yeah. So I actually, last week, I was talking to Frances Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower, and, and we have this Q&A coming out um, with her. And she was sort of, she was kind of coming up with these ideas of like, you know, for example, this problem of like, kids are so addicted to Instagram and they're using it late at night and it, you know, basically just like interferes with like their sleep and their life and everything. And she had said something about like, you know, why there's all this like um, research that proves that like every second that like a, an app or something is slow, people are like out, you know? And so she had this idea where she's like, you know, if we're serious about wanting to limit kids' usage of Instagram, there should be some kind of like you know, like curfew where it's like the closer it gets to midnight, the slower your app gets. It's like not going to load as fast. It's not going to basically it's not going to work as well. And she's like, that's how we get kids off Instagram at night yeah. because they'll just be like, man, screw this. Like I it's can't not even. working. Yeah. And so I'm kind of like, maybe actually this like Twitter slowdown is good for us because yeah. we're just like, I'm not as dependent on yeah. it anymore. It's true. I'm, I feel yeah. like I'm not as dependent on it anymore yeah. in some ways. But I mean, I think I mean, that's super interesting that she said that. I've actually experienced that. I mean, I feel like I came sort of late to TikTok. I've probably been on it for a year, maybe a year and a half now, Mm -hmm. maybe a year. Um, And I love it. I mostly use it, though, for cleaning and cooking videos. (laughs) If we're we're talking about news media, I don't really see how news media fits into TikTok. But at the Mm -hmm. same time, someone's going to figure it out. Like Mm -hmm. some some smart young person will, like, figure out how Mm -hmm. to kind of— make news work for TikTok. Mm -hmm. I don't know if anyone's figured it out yet, but I think it has been pretty destabilizing as a media reporter that a lot of the news actually feels like it's no longer on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Not that I wish this on the world, but I was almost like, listen, if Tucker Carlson asked me where he should take his show, I would have been like, put it on TikTok, man. Yeah. Like, that's... That's where you should be. Yeah. Again, like I'm not wishing gonna this like, on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to listen. I bet Tucker listens to this. He's going to be like, oh, that's a pretty good yeah. idea. I do agree with you that like I think TikTok actually does work for talking heads. Like, people, same with comedians. Like I think mm-hmm. late night clips yeah. because it's not really news mm-hmm. and you don't need it to, you know, the the idea of this kind of like pundit, I feel like would really find a home on, yes, on TikTok. Definitely. Because um, it's also like people want to form a relationship. It's like, you know, you're basically making eye contact with this person in the video the whole time. You start feeling very parasocial about them, too. Yeah, totally. But, I mean, even TikTok is, like, the sort of reigning giant right now of, like, the social media scene. Like, that seems up in the air. Like, Montana just banned TikTok, and I think no one's totally sure what that really means. But it does seem like, you know, there's this unease even about maybe, like, you know, this company that's doing it really— you could say TikTok is doing it right, but they're still having a bit of a crisis of their own as well. I do think a lot of people talk about the fact that like what Twitter is still good for are watching sports, watching TV. Mm-hmm. I think in a testament to the fact that Twitter is still somewhat alive and well, I did not go. I had to watch the succession finale daily and I could not open the app because Same. I knew it was going to ruin it for Same. me. Yeah. Um. And spoiler alert, when Logan died, it was all over Twitter. Yeah. So I feel, I mean, the LA Times published a fake obituary, so. Yeah. It was almost comforting that it was like, oh, here's a big thing, you know, kind of operating, happening in culture. And now you see it everywhere, too. Yeah. Because it, like, confirms your your, your perception of it. 
But yeah, it's really funny that we're having this conversation, I think, all right on the heels of the series finale of, of Succession, because I don't know if you saw this morning, but all of these jokes about, you know, now that Chris Licht is out, Tom Wom scams. Is that how you say yeah. his last name? <laughs> I've never actually said it out loud. Tom's in. Like, that's basically the the plot, right? It's like who who will take over this huge legacy news organization. Um, and it's it's very poignant that, like, that plot point is really on our minds, even as it's unfolding right now in, in real life. Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, I think it, Puck had a headline, Zaz's pain sponge, when the Atlantic article came out. And that was obviously referring to Chris like being kind of the pain sponge for David Zaslav in the same way that Tom was for Matson. Yeah. I think if we're thinking about the future of media and, you know, say we look at succession, it's not an optimistic picture, right? Because this, you know, ATN, this like legacy news organization is swallowed by this bigger tech company. Like, yeah, that feels very prescient, right? And and we know that this big tech company under Matson, he's like not interested in the legacy. He's not interested in the journalism. He literally has this conversation with Tom where he's just like, I just need you to kind of like cover me while I just like get under the hood and like <laughs> mess around and like take things apart. That feels like that feels correct for yeah. where we are in media, where things are happening under the purview of, you know, these much bigger powers. And, you know, I'm not sure we're going to be thrilled with the results at the end of the day. Yeah, we might all be uh, sitting in Battery Park looking over. Yeah. <laughs> looking over at the water. We'll be looking at Battery Park on our Vision Pro goggles and we'll be like, <laughs> it's almost like we're there. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Thanks, Delia. So fun chatting. I know. It's so lovely to chat with you as always, Charlotte. This episode of Inside the Hive was produced by Will Coley. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. We had engineering assistance from Jake Loomis. For more news from Inside the Hive, be sure to sign up for our newsletter at vanityfair.com forward slash newsletter forward slash hive. And let us know what you thought of this episode or if you have any comments or questions. You can tweet at us. We're still on Twitter for now. Um, I'm at Delia underscore Kai. And I'm at Charlotte T. Klein. Join us again next week for another episode of Inside the Hive, where Wall Street, Washington, and Silicon Valley meet. Dude, why are your Instagram story circles so big now? I know. They're, it's wild. I feel like an old person. I'm like, <laughs> do you think we have a location tag for Condé Nast? One World Trade. It's just One World Trade. Yeah. Oh, in we the, do. In the stew. The studio at Condé Nast. That's where we are. In the stew. In the stew. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.